There are many, many different points of view about the place called hell. This morning, I want us to study a passage of Scripture found in Luke chapter 16, and the title of this morning's message is Straight Talk About Hell. Straight Talk About Hell. We saw some men on the street opinions about hell, but can I give you just a couple of other alternatives to what we're going to study this morning that have become somewhat popular once again in our culture. In North America, among scholars and theologians, there are two other points of view that you may encounter from time to time other than the one we're going to see in God's Word today. One of those is universalism. Universalism believes that there, no one goes to hell, there is no hell, and everyone ultimately is saved. That was popularized again recently, a few years ago, by a book by Rob Bell called Love Wins, where he held open the possibility that anyone and everyone outside of the family of God at death could ultimately make their way into the presence of God and be forgiven. Universalism. Another point of view is called annihilationism. Annihilationism is the belief that there are people who go to heaven and then others who simply cease to exist. That hell is simple destruction. Not a place of punishment, but a place where you simply stop existing. Now let me give you two very good reasons to take hell more seriously than that. The first one is the word sin. This is not on your handout. But nothing else causes us to understand the seriousness of sin than the consequences described in the Bible. There are more warnings about hell in Scripture than there are statements about heaven. What universalism does is eliminate human responsibility for our sin. If I'm not responsible for it, then I can just go right on in to heaven. Annihilationism eliminates the consequences of sin. I just cease to exist. So the consequences are very small. Yet the Bible says the consequences for sin are great. Let me give you another reason to take hell seriously. Jesus did. Jesus did. In the passage of Scripture that we're going to study, Jesus is describing the place we call hell. People want to talk about how radically different Jesus was in his teaching of love and forgiveness. And yet Jesus spoke of hell more than all of the others in Scripture combined. He had much to say about it, and I believe he was telling the truth. Author and evangelist John Blanchard once said, To believe in heaven but not in hell is to declare, is to declare that there were times when Jesus was telling the truth and times when he was lying. It's popular right now to talk about near-death experiences. There are books being published and videos being made about people who claim to have gone to the other side and come back describing their experience of heaven. But did you know that there are many, many experiences that are not so good that are called near-death experiences, where they experience something awful and tragic and horrific? This morning, we're going to look at a final death experience, not a near-death experience, but one that actually happened to someone. Now, some scholars read this passage of Scripture and say it's a parable. But Jesus never said that it was a parable. In fact, he acts like it's history, something that actually took place, something that actually occurred. Now, there are three questions 
I want us to build our study of this passage around this morning. Here's the first one. Why does someone go to hell? That's one of the things they asked about in the man on the street interviews. Why does someone go to hell? Number one, for enthroning self. For enthroning self. In chapter 16, verse 19, what Jesus says opens in this way. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. There are clues embedded in this text that you and I need to see. This man's motto was, it's all about me and my happiness. That was the core of his life. That was his core philosophy. He was intent on pursuing his personal happiness. It says that he, clo- he was clothed in purple and fine linen. Literally, because of the way it's phrased in the original language, it's called the middle voice. It's describing something he was doing to himself. He was clothing himself in fine linen and purple every day. Those were expensive items, and he was sparing no expense on himself. Another clue we see from the text is that it says he fared sumptuously every day. That's a clue about how he used people. You say, well, Don, how does that describe his relationships to other people? Because when it says he fared sumptuously, meaning he was filled and ate and stuff, it means he, he didn't just do it every day. He did it all day long, but it was, it was done for him. The word fared is passive, meaning someone served him, someone took care of him, and he used people. People existed for his benefit and what he could get from them. They brought him happiness. They brought him pleasure. And you say, well, Don, aren't we supposed to enjoy life? Doesn't God want us to be happy? Yes. Jesus talked all about joy. In fact, in John 10.10, he said, I am come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. But true happiness is not found in taking care of just your self. Happiness is found when you and I get off the throne of our life and let Jesus be Lord. In Romans 14 verse 9, Paul writes, for to this end, this is why Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the living and the dead. He didn't die just to be your savior. He died so that you would get off the throne and give it over to Jesus. For anyone else to sit on the throne of your life is a form of rebellion, and the consequence is eternal and disastrous. Another reason people go to hell is for failing to do God's will in this life. Failing to do God's will in this life. Listen to verse 20. This is a contrast to the rich man. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, God made each of us, made you and me, with a specific plan in mind for our life. He made you for a purpose. And we can tell, by the way, this story is unfolding, that part of the purpose of this rich man was to take care of another man named Lazarus. Every day, he walked in and out of his house while Lazarus sat there, in the street. Lazarus had no way of caring for himself. He was a beggar. He was laid at the gate. He was sick. He had sores. And it says he was longing, desiring to be fed. And that word means to be filled up 
with the crumbs that fell from the man's table. He has the resources, the crumbs. He has the time. He has the opportunity. Lazarus is at his gate. And all Lazarus would like is just once, just once to be filled up with food. And God wanted to use that rich man to answer the cry of Lazarus. But he wasn't listening. There's a third reason people go to hell. It's for choosing to serve the wrong master. Choosing to serve the wrong master. In verse 22, the Bible says, So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Now scholars have noted, and I think maybe you have noticed it by now, that it's very unusual for Jesus to name someone in a story. But he names Lazarus, calls him by name, and the rich man is just that. We don't know his name. He's just the rich man. Lazarus means God is my help. Lazarus means God is my help. I believe Jesus is making a point. The man whose name was God is my help went to heaven when he died. The man who was simply the rich man went to hell. Lazarus was a man who was trusting in God throughout his life. So you've got to ask the question, what was the rich man trusting in? Well, just before Jesus tells this story in Luke 16, we began reading at verse 19. But if you back up to verse 13, these are words that Jesus spoke to the religious leaders. Luke 16, verse 13, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal or devoted to the one and despise or think little of the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, the rich man. That's what he was about. His name tells the whole story. That's his nickname. That was his focus. That's all he was. That's all he'll ever be. He put his trust and and security in the significance that was given to him by his wealth. So why do people go to hell? They are rebels resisting God. They are people blind to God's will for their life. And there are men and women who are simply not putting their trust in God. But there's a second question we need to explore, and that is, what is hell? What do we learn from this passage about the place called hell? Well, first of all, hell's a place of miserable association. Miserable association. Look look at verse 23. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Now, everyone likes to be loved. Everyone likes to be cared for, but hell's not a place like that. There's no one there who's going to love you, no one there who's going to care for you. The Bible tells us that Satan will be there. He's not there now, but he will be. Revelation 20, verse 10 says, The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever." And ever. Doesn't sound like annihilation to me. 
Others will be there. Revelation 21 verse 8 says, But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So Satan's there, those demons are there, and all of these other wonderful people are there. It's described as a place of utter darkness. The light never goes on. In Matthew 25, verse 30, Jesus said, And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The Bible also describes fire. If you skip down to verse 24, it describes a flame. And there's always this discussion of whether there's little literal fire or not. But let me tell you this. The fire clearly symbolizes the worst kind of pain that we can imagine. And the symbol of something is just a shadow of the reality. The reality of it is far greater than the symbol. I don't believe that we can adequately describe the pain and the torment associated with hell. But Jesus tells us that it's like fire. There's pain. There's no joy there. There's no, oh boy, now I get to do what I want to do. The soul's capacity for pain is greater than the body's, and the soul is suffering. He says in the next verse, I am tormented. Note that helplessness. There's a burning. There's a longing in his soul that's never fulfilled, that's never satisfied, that never goes away. Eternally dying, eternally perishing, yet never knowing the comfort that death brings. Well, hell's not only a place of miserable association, it's also a place of complete isolation. Listen to verse 24. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Lazarus is just a lackey. He says, send Lazarus, for I am tormented in his flame. But Abraham said, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, your ultimate good, and likewise Lazarus' evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. In hell, God is conspicuous by his absence. What makes hell hell is the absence of the presence of God. Right now in this world that you and I live in, there are good things and there are experiences of love and pleasure and delight. There are things that are wonderful to taste, wonderful to look at, wonderful to experience. Why? Because the goodness of God is showered on the unrighteous and the righteous in this life. But in hell, the presence of God is removed. In 2 Thessalonians 1.9, the Bible says they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. That's what hell's about. It's a simple removal, the very presence of God. Notice that this man is conscious with a conscience. He's thinking. He's not asleep. In fact, he never sleeps. He's fully alert, fully aware of what's happening. He knows why he's there. And you will have to live with that consciousness of of what you're doing there for all time. And he remembers. Abraham said, son, remember that in your lifetime. I want to read something to you. 
by an author named Randy Alcorn, who's written a marvelous book, by the way, on heaven. But in one of his novels called Deadline, he spends some 45, 50, 60 pages describing someone who goes to hell. And I've just taken snippets of it, pieces of it, and I want you to hear what he wrote, because I think it's biblical. At 6.06 a.m. on October 28th, Gregory Victory Lowell, Victor Lowell, had exited his temporary residence. He'd been unconscious his last hours, but on leaving his body, his faculties immediately sharpened. Time had passed if time was still existing. The time or day on earth was unknown and irrelevant here, wherever here was. He was out of his body, which meant he was dead. And he realized in a flash of insight he had been wrong all those years in thinking that life ended with death. He said there was no soul, but a soul is exactly what he was and had been all along. He had not ceased to exist. A sickening feeling of foreboding gripped him. He was unprepared for this realm, and it was now too late to prepare. Where was everybody? Doc had never felt so utterly alone. He was waiting for someone to come, a citizen of this realm, to orient him, to explain the ground rules, the boundaries, and the opportunities in this world. There was an invisible fence. He could sense it. A limiting wall that could not be penetrated. An iron curtain locking him in, preventing any escape. This was confinement. Much worse, it was solitary confinement. And he kept hoping that it was only temporary. The God he insisted did not exist, and he did not want or need, had granted him his wish. To have him once and for all out of his life, he realized now there was no life without the creator and sustainer of life. This was existence, not life. This was eternal death. For a moment, Doc was filled with grief, but it was quickly replaced with anger and outrage, much deeper than before. How dare God do this to him? He had no tool with which to inflict harm on himself, nor did this body, though capable of great suffering, seem capable of being harmed. His body was like a bush that burned but was not consumed. The pain that could neither end nor be relieved seared his mind, now in a fearful craze. Thirst without water to quench it. Hunger without food to satisfy it. Loneliness without company to assuage it. There was no God here. He'd gotten his wish. On earth, he'd managed to reject God while still getting in on so many of the blessings and provisions of God. But it was now clear excruciatingly clear, the absence of God meant the absence of all God gives. No one could have good without the God who is the source of all good. No God, no good forever. He missed the sound of laughter. There was no laughter here. There could be no laughter where there was no hope. The awful realization descended on him that there was no storyline here, no opening scene, no developing plot, no climax, no resolution, no character development, no travel, no movement, only constant nothingness, going nowhere. This was Doc's first day in hell, and he knew despite every protestation erupting from within him that every day would be the same, and of his days here, there could be no end. No end, no sleep, no escape, 
questions pointed their mocking, bony fingers at him? Why had he been so sure about what he did not know? Why had he been so stubborn, insisting on being his own God, living by his own rules? He'd been a fool and would remain a fool throughout all eternity. He's conscious with a conscience. He remembers. Abraham says, son, remember. And for someone who grows up in North America, who grows up in the Delta, from Arkansas, you know what that could mean? Every sermon he or she ever heard, they'll remember. Every Sunday school class they ever sat in and barely listened to, they'll remember. Every Christian who ever tried to talk to them about Christ, they'll remember. Every television evangelist they heard on TV giving an invitation that they thought was silly and just a money grubber or a charlatan, they'll remember that too. We don't forget. What is hell? Hell's a place of miserable association, complete isolation, but it's also a place of eternal separation. Look at verse 26. You need to see this. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. There are no second chances. There's no gate left open that people can make their way to if they want to. There's no parole. There's no getting out. It's a great gulf fixed. It's done. And you say, well, I thought God was a God of love. God was a God who forgives. He is. And he's done everything to make it possible to rescue you from this place. He is a God of love, but he is a God of absolute justice. And he's not going to make you. Follow him. The final question I want to pose this morning is this. What would a visitor from hell want to say? If this man had the opportunity, the rich man, and came and spoke to us this morning, what would he say? Listen to verse 27. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He's almost suggesting that I didn't get a fair shake here. Someone should have told me. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will, be they, will they be persuaded the one rise from the dead. If he could speak to us, I don't, I don't believe for a second that he would fail to tell the truth about the isolation and the loneliness and the pain and the torment and the memories. But that isolation, that aloneness, is broken only by the terror and the horror that someone else that I know might wind up here also. If he could speak to us, I believe he would say something a little different. 
to each group that's sitting here this morning. To unbelievers, I believe he would say, give your life to God. Give your life to God before it's too late. Give it up. This place called hell is bad. It is so bad that Jesus died on the cross to keep you from it. It's serious. Give your life to Christ before it's too late. He does not want you there. He made you for himself. To believers. I believe he would say, tell people the truth. Tell people the truth. Tell your family the truth. Tell your parents the truth. Tell your sisters and brothers the truth. Tell your children, your grandchildren the truth. If they go to hell, it should be in spite of our prayers, in spite of our many conversations with them, in spite of our efforts to love them, to care for them, and show them the way to Christ. It should be in spite of our personal testimony. It should be in spite of our verbal witness. Don't say you love them if they are hell-bound and you say nothing to them about Christ. And then to the third group, to this church, I believe he would say, rescue the perishing. Rescue the perishing. We, as a church, are called to make it very difficult to go to hell from the delta. We are called to make it more difficult to go to hell from Wynn, Arkansas. We are called to use every dollar. We are called to use our time. We are called to use our effort to make it increasingly difficult to go to hell from here. Every dollar, every service, every Sunday school class should make it more difficult for people to go to hell. Jesus said his mission was to seek and to save that which was lost. Is that your mission? Is that your assignment? Have you taken that personally? We are not a clique. We are not a club. We are called to follow him and rescue. Keep the mission going. Rescue the people who desperately need to be saved. Let me ask you to bow your heads and to close your eyes. We're going to have a time of response, and we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper this morning. But before we do that, with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you don't know this morning with certainty that when you die that you're going to go to heaven, if you don't know that Jesus died for you on the cross so that you would not go to hell, I want to give you the opportunity to pray this morning. Then to publicly and without hesitation or shame, I'm going to invite you to come forward and share that decision with men. Pastors will be standing down front. Jesus Christ did die on the cross for your sins. Your sins are so offensive to a holy God that hell is your destiny without Christ. Everyone that you know without Jesus is on a trajectory for hell at this very moment. And I fear that we do not understand. And worse yet, many of us do not care 
and our hearts don't beat with the heartbeat of Jesus who spoke more about hell than heaven. This morning, if you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it's not about joining a church. It's not about being a member of a church. It's not about how good you are or how well you can clean up your life. It's not about what you believe. It's all about who you trust. And if you take your life and you entrust your life to Jesus Christ, say, Lord, I'm trusting you to save me. I'm trusting that you died on the cross for my sins. I'm trusting you and you only. I'm not trusting in my works. I'm not trusting in my goodness. I'm not trusting in anything in me. I'm putting all my trust in you. And for the rest of my life, I want to follow you as my Lord and Savior. If you will cry out to him, pray a prayer like that, he will save you. The Bible says, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Are you saved? Are you saved? Then church family, God has called us to be evangelists. God has called us to tell the story of Jesus and his rescue to every person that we know. Who is God bringing to your mind right now? Who is he stirring your heart? Who is, who is he putting on your, your mind and your heart as a burden, someone to pray for, someone to talk to? And will you say yes? Our Father and our God, we thank you, Lord, for your word and its power to tell us the truth about ourselves, the world we live in, and about you. This morning I pray for that person who is calling on your name right now and who is putting their trust in you as Lord and Savior. I pray not only would you hear their cry, but they would sense the incredible forgiveness and the washing away of sin that comes by trusting Jesus Christ. I pray this morning you would set people free from the bondage of the devil that you would set people free from the bondage of sin as we simply put our trust in you and determine to follow you the rest of our days. Father, as we respond to you now, would you lead us, Holy Spirit, each of us, to respond to your word as you lead. For we ask it in Jesus' name.